The Beauty Biz, brought to you by serial entrepreneur and aesthetic clinic chain founder, Esther Fieldgrass. Your regular insider peek into the beauty and wellness industry. Hello all, Esther here. Welcome back to The Beauty Biz, your sneak peek into the world of wellness, beauty and aesthetics. We've got a treat for you today. Today's guest is one of the leading experts in aesthetics in the UK. Our very own Vicky Eldridge, who is the editor of the industry's leading aesthetics medicine magazine. Vicky, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Aesthetics magazine is an industry magazine for clinic professionals. Whenever Vicky and I get together, we spend hours chatting all things industry, and I'm delighted to be able to share our conversations with our listeners today. So first up, Vicky, what brought you into the world of aesthetics? Well, it kind of happened by accident, actually. I was a local newspaper reporter and I'd been working on a, a very small community for about uh, five years, which I, which I loved. It was a great job, but I was really keen to get to the big city to move to London. And I just started applying for jobs on magazines where I had some kind of interest. So at the time, you know, I thought, oh, beauty, that would be interesting and film and, you know, fashion, all of these kind of things. And um, I ended up getting a job on Professional Beauty magazine as a features writer. And uh, that was just over 15 years ago. So it was at the time when the aesthetics industry was, you know, really starting to become something that people were talking about. It had obviously existed before then, but um, it was starting to grow at that stage. And um I was given the task of writing one monthly feature on aesthetics and um, I just had a backlog of people who were who wanted to be in that feature and um, at the same time I met um, the aesthetic nurse Emma Davies and she had been thinking about how to launch some kind of journal for aesthetic nurses and doctors. Um, so we kind of came together, spoke with my boss and um, we launched Aesthetic Medicine and that was in July 2005 so... That was how I kind of got into it. Yeah, it's a while ago, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into the nitty gritty, I really want to ask you about your own wellness and self-care routine. Um, you're an editor of, of a monthly magazine, which is always talking about the latest things that are going on within the industry. And I know you're busy, but what do you do for yourself? So, um, yeah, self-care has become really important to me. And I think increasingly recently, you know, as I'm getting older and... Um, and, you know, my, my job workload has increased. And um, I just, last year, I, I burnt out really from, from too much stress. And um, so I've really made sure that I've readdressed that work-life balance and that I um, have self-care on a daily basis, really. And I'm, I'm really into the mindfulness and well-being and things like that. That's something I've been practicing for about four years now. But, you know, I let that slide sometimes when I get too busy. So, over the last year, I've really kind of rededicated myself to that. And I have, um, nowadays I go to bed really early so that I can get up early in the morning and I do a bit of a spiritual routine before I start my day. Um, and that usually involves um, prayer and meditation. Um, uh, like you, I am trained in Reiki, but only not to be able to give treatments to other people. But I do self-treatments and, um, you know, really not just create a nice morning environment. I do some spiritual reading, Um and I quite often put my little LED face lamp on as well and sit under that for a while. And um, because I get up so early, I can do that before starting my day. And that, that kind of sets me off in the might right, might right mindset. 
And um, the other thing that I do is that I um, I started, um, I read Psychology's magazine, which I absolutely love. And I think they've got loads of good tips in there for self-care and well-being. And um, as a writer, I love writing things down. So I do a lot of journaling. And um, I think, you know, getting things out of you and writing it down on paper is really helpful, you know, for not only for self-exploration, you can see patterns of behaviour that maybe aren't serving you, but I think it really helps you to let go of any of those niggles that we have on a daily basis where someone's irritated you or, you know. Um, so I find that really helpful. And, um, yeah, the other thing that is really important for me these days is exercise. I've just started doing the Red January challenge for uh, the charity Mind, and it's all about encouraging good mental health and well-being through daily exercise so getting outside and running or walking oh i love that yeah that, yeah. <laughs> that really feels it sort of touches a spot i mean you talk about um psychologies and meditation you find the meditation brings balance is it something you do once a day twice a day um it's something i try to do every day i'm not um i can be sporadic with it but um it's something i definitely try and do every day and sometimes i use guided meditations you know these um apps I've got one called 10% Happier at the moment which is really good but other times I just sit and um, sometimes I do that in the middle of my work day um, I'm working at home now so I could just take a little break and sit down for five minutes and just kind of re reset and I find that really helpful my mind is often racing all over the place so I do find it you know hard sometimes to to focus during meditation but I think it's you know about letting those thoughts come and letting them go rather than trying to have an empty mind yeah I'm just rereading the secret and that's oh yeah. wonderful I love, I love that. that yeah I love that great um I mean Vicky you know everyone within the industry and you've got so much knowledge at your fingertips because you're always learning more and reading about more and writing about more but if I said to you what treatments and products do you yourself swear by that's quite a challenging question because I think sometimes when you're writing about things, you do try out a lot of stuff. And actually, maybe the downside of that is I don't stick to things for very long, which is kind of the opposite of what we advise people is finding a good routine and, and kind of sticking with it. Um, but that being said, there are, um, you know, I've been in the industry a long time and there's a number of treatments and products that I really like and that I go back to. Um, I'm a big fan of hydrofacials. I love those. And I've had quite a few of those in it over the time I've been in the industry. And um, I particularly these days, um, I'm going to be 40 next week. And oh. um, yeah, I, and I'm much more about the skin kind of rejuvenation uh, treatments. I'm, I'm a big fan of peels and, um, and advanced facials and things like that. So something with low, lowish downtime, um, but where you, you you can have them fairly regularly and uh, and see an improvement in the in the skin quality. So um, yeah, I do like uh, I do like a, a peel as well. And um, I did have I've always been a little you know cautious about injectables, but I did have Profilo last year, oh, um, I love and Profilo. I absolutely loved it because I looked natural I looked like me um, but it was quite you know impressive and, and certainly when it wore off I noticed so that was a really great treatment and I really enjoyed that and product wise I'm god I've tried so many products in my time in the industry <laughs> should look at my place yeah right I know and you know I've, I'm always getting more and more to um, but you do find ones that you particularly you particularly like I did a trial with the um, 
Baji Nudum, and I think when there's something you're trying to address that's a problem where you need correction, yep. something that's, you know, quite aggressive like that can be great. But um, actually, I, I'm a real fan of the Exuviance range, which is slightly more of a kind of spary type range of the Neostrata um, yep. company. And um, I really like some of their products. They've got a nice uh, facial scrub and um, and a clay, purifying clay mask, which I'm a real fan of um and i love those masks the gel kind of masks that you put on so the mesoesthetic you're a real girl what can i do i like a bit of pampering and um (laughs) i love the mesoesthetic post peel recovery masks um my mum also loves those so we you know just put those on and they're really cooling aren't they they're lovely (laughs) so yeah i actually despite you know i work in an industry where i do get to try some incredible treatments and over the years when i've suffered with things from acne and um you know i've had hair removal and stuff it's it's amazing but actually you know if i wasn't in the industry i would maintain um using the really good skincare and um having some advanced facial treatments like things like the hydrofacial does your mum go with you or does she sit at home with you and play with all the products? She is excited when I get products. So, yeah. And actually it's great because she's obviously, she's 70 and um, so she gets to try out things that I'm perhaps a little bit too young for at the moment or um, her main concern is this, you know, the neck area. And so she likes if I get anything for that and she's a big fan of any kind of moisturising, you know, anything that feels like Hydrate, it's really hydrating. Yeah. So, you know, I do I do share the the products that I get with, with my family. <laughs> Actually, interestingly enough, on the way over here, I was just showing uh, Elia piece in the, in on the news um, that Roche-Posay have brought out this new item, which is actually you stick it on your arm and it tells you your pH balance. Have oh, you wow. seen that? No, I haven't seen that. Uh, yeah, and I thought, wow, but only somebody like L'Oreal can afford to do this type mm. of stuff. I, I'm interested to see how it develops in the market. Yes. <laughs> um, so, Vicky, you're raving on about Profilo. This is actually a treatment I have myself, and I do it actually once every six months. For those of you who don't know what it is, Profilo is actually a hyaluronic acid. Now, hyaluronic acid we have naturally within our own bodies, and it's something we produce naturally. But what it does is for when skin is a little bit dry and a bit deflated, they put in maybe five little injections into the face of the Profilo, which is a hyaluronic acid, and it actually spreads under the skin and helps to smooth and hydrate the skin. So it makes your skin look much more dewy and fresh. It's not a filler, but we all love it. And even Vicky in her tender 39 years (laughs) is using it now. So it's something that everyone can use. And it can not only be used in the face, but it can be used in the neck and it can be used in the decollete and the hands. And so it's a great little product to have. But again, make sure it's being done by somebody that's trained in this product and knows how to put it into the face. So if you're out there and you want to try it, do enjoy. The industry, I know, talking about it, the industry is changing so rapidly at the minute. Uh, the market is different, uh, even how it was like 18 months ago. Mm. I mean, you, you must be seeing this. Have you noticed the changes when you're writing about things, about what's happening out there? Yeah, I think um, aesthetics has always been quite a, you know, like a evolving and changing market because we're constantly having new technologies and innovations come into the sector. But it really has ramped up, I think, a level, I th- both in terms of the number of people that are interested in having things done. So I think one of the biggest changes we've noticed as a magazine is that the demographic of who's interested in aesthetics and who's having it 
has changed. So a lot of younger people, um, more men, you know, there's there's that kind of acceptability. And with that comes demand for more treatments and more different types of treatments to cater for those. So I think those those two things are, you know, driving forward um, some of the change in the market. And um, I know we're going to discuss the whole regulation issue, but, you know, that really does shape how things are changing in the industry. And I uh, I think sometimes for good and sometimes for bad, but there's, there's certainly, you feel like everything's being shaken up a little bit and, and we're either going to you know, level out, which is what I hope, <laughs> or it'll uh, carry on a bit more. And uh... yeah, I know. I mean, we've seen a tremendous growth, but I mean, what do you think is driving the growth? So we've done quite a lot of stories about market trends over the last year. And actually, last week, I did a review of 2018, where we look back at some of the key kind of trends and um, stories that we'd written over the last year. And that was interesting to do because it reminded me of what had happened and a lot of the data that we got from you know all of these different places at real self and mintel and the american association of plastic surgeons that, that all send in data a lot of that highlighted um millennials and generation z as being drivers of the market and i think they were saying that one they're more open and um you know, to to having treatments and um, to talking about it. I suppose social media has definitely influenced that. And um, yeah, and, uh, you know, the celebrities are talking about having aesthetic treatments done. And, and again, this could be a really good thing because I don't think there's anything wrong with starting to take care of your skin at a young age. But then there's the worrying side of the... Yeah, 15-year-olds wanting lip fillers and and buttock implants and things like that. So it's, uh, you know, any kind of um, trend or growth has its positive side for the industry and it's negative. But uh, I think certainly that demand from a wider demographic of people is is driving some of the the growth in the market. I mean, have you noticed when talking to the doctors that actually surgery is down? Yes, very much so, yeah. And people are looking for treatments that are less painful, with less downtime. And I think that's where we've seen a lot of innovation from, particularly if you look at the lasers and devices side of the industry. You know, when I first came into the sector, really, laser hair removal existed. And it was the CO2 lasers, the ablative lasers. You know, it was quite a big thing to undergo, very effective, but it you know, the yeah. downtime was really serious. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, if we think about how many different devices we have and, and, and what they can be used for, it's incredible, really. And, you know, there's I, I don't know if there's necessarily completely new treatments, but it's the innovation in terms of making those treatments quicker, making them less painful, or making the downtime less that I've really noticed with the devices side of the sector. And again, I think that then, I don't know whether it's the chicken or the egg, you know, um, whether that's meeting the demand for people who are not necessarily, you know, they, I think if you've got a lot of sun damage and something really, you know, wrong, you might be prepared to go through the downtime. Whereas if you're, you know, you just want a bit of a freshen up, you're not. Um, uh, or whether it's, yeah, I, I don't know which has come first, but I think that the two go hand in hand. There's definitely a, well, a demand, which, a supply and demand. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, listening to you talk about this, it kind of brings me on to... Um, I've been interested for many years in merging of aesthetics and wellness yes. services. And I suppose now you're seeing this more and more. I mean, what do you think about this, that aesthetics is going much more into wellness? Yes, definitely. This is another of the trends that we have noticed as a business and um, something I'm really pleased about because I have a personal interest in in that. And um, But I also think... You know, it's never a one-size-all-fits-all uh, approach. And um, I love the, you know, I know for you, you founded a Medispa, so it's... But that concept, 
when I first came into the industry, there were a couple of like medi spas in the States, but it wasn't, you What's know, there the was quite thing? a separate thing. Yeah. Uh, very much you have surgery or you go to a spa and have a massage. And But now I, I do think that, one, there's the aspect of people who are offering aesthetic treatments, offering that more pampering experience. So you don't have to have a peel and it be a really clinical experience. I mean, it needs to be professional and uh, things like that. But it, but there's nothing wrong with adding those rituals in to make something a bit more of an experience. And I think that's one aspect that the aesthetics markets learned from the, the spa and wellness kind of industry. But more than that, I think it's, you know, realising that, okay, we can fix a, a wrinkle or we can fix some damage, but what's going on internally? And I know that that's something that you have always been, you know, passionate about, but I really think that's important. And I think we're seeing more and more people starting to take that 360 degree approach where they're looking at, okay, so somebody's suffering with this particular problem, but what's going on with their hormones? You know, what's their diet like? <laughs> you know, all of these kind of things. And I, we're running um, a two-day regenerative medicine conference, aesthetic medicine this year, and that's the first time that we've done that. So that's it's a whole own programme alongside our main conference. Um, and it's in association with Queen Mary's University because they have a MSc there. And, um, and I'm really excited for that because that's talking about all of these things. And how I think you can make your clinic or your practice stand out from the crowd if you're really, truly offering people more than just, OK, I'm going to put something in that wrinkle. And I think a lot of I'm noticing a lot of, um, you know, practitioners are, are embracing that now because they, they want to you know, yeah. enhance it's, and maintain results for their patients. And, I know. Uh, it's, it's something I've been looking at and working with for the last 10, 12 mm. years. And, you know, it's suddenly coming into its own, which I'm really it's a happy word, about. isn't it? Wellness. Wellness. It's yeah. Where it's all at. You're ahead of the trend. Always. Um, I'm going back to surgery again. Yes. Breast surgery over the years has been prolific. Mm. But what we saw, we had the PIP scandal where we had the inserts which had terrible gel inside them, which came in yeah. from France. And they broke and they caused a lot of problems. And... It kind of, as soon as that came out, and I understand why, breast surgery totally mm -hmm. fell. And then it picked up again. Yeah. And now today what we're seeing in the press is this problem from actually Allergan, of all people, mm. where they have a, a breast implant with a profile which isn't smooth. It, it's sort of, yes, yes, it's there to hold in place. Mm. And they're saying it's causing big problems with the immune system and people are having a lot of, I don't know, downtime with it and they're having to come out again these implants having to come out and of course it's it's caused a total drop off again with within the industry of people having the implants mm. but there are other implants that are out there which you don't have the same problem with and also today i know within my own clinics we're doing a lot more with actually fat transfer yeah what is your, what is your take on this i mean again it, is it a lot of people out there or is it just the press that have got hold of a couple of ladies and you know, just highlighting it? It's really hard to tell because the UK is sadly lacking in statistics in terms of these things. And it's great. We have the, um, I know that the Breast Registry has just published its first report and that's going to be really interesting in terms of, you know, kind of tracking where implants have come from, who's put them in, you know, all of these types of things and and I know the British Association of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons do an annual audit where they, they release information about their members. So we have some understanding of how kind of the market is going in terms of that. But surgery across the board seems to have dropped off. And I definitely agree with you that a lot of this is to do with fears. I do think that another thing that's had an impact on it is 
the fact that in terms of Instagram body trends, um, that the kind of fit look is more in. Uh-huh. So I don't think there's so much demand for bigger breasts in in that in that sense. But I certainly think that a lot of that has been impacted, um, like you say, by by the fact that there's been some some problems flagged in the press. Again, like with everything, um, like we've we've kind of discussed. I always think that those that makes people think that that is the whole picture where there's been over the years god god knows how many millions of breast implants done with no um problems but like many things I think people do prefer to have something more natural that comes from their own body than they do to have a foreign object yeah I know we're seeing that within clinic with actually the fat transfer that mm. we're doing yeah yeah and it's it's one of those areas where um actually I don't I'm not overly knowledgeable so much on on the surgical side of things and particularly I think fat transfer is really interesting but it's not something I know a lot about um, and I always think you know with any with any treatments when you're dealing with you know we've seen all of this stuff come up this year about the vaginal treatments when you're dealing with areas you know like your breasts and and um, the, the people need to be really careful because you know there's like you say, you don't want anything that's going to cause cancer or yeah. any of these things like that. It's just not worth it for an aesthetic reason. So any treatments that can address potential problems, I think, are exciting and definitely something to watch. Yeah, I mean, in, interestingly enough, when you talk about the vaginal area, so many women, you know, suffer with stress mm. urinary incontinence yeah. and don't want to talk about it. No. And today it's not major surgery anymore. You can do an awful lot with um, CO2 lasers, for mm. example. I know we do. Our gynecologist, our in-house gynecologist, does a lot of work with that and sees amazing results. Mm. But women are still actually very, I don't know, sensitive about it. Yeah, about talking about it. And I think this has been, um, again, as we know, there was the stuff flagged up in the press earlier this year about um, warnings about safety of devices. And it comes down to... The same thing as always, it's going to somebody who's probably qualified. I believe that should be a gynecologist, really, yeah, or someone with training in that area. I, um, you know, and it's it's what kind of device you're using. That's not they're not all the same. There's some that, um, you, you know, so there's quite often when something comes out in the press, it's like these are dangerous, and that's uh, and then people think that that's everything. And actually, I know that there's a lot of um, devices out there have really offered people a new kind of lease of life because. Absolutely. Again, it's not just about the sexual aspect of it, which is the more interesting aspect to write about if you're, you know, a, a national newspaper. But it is the functional aspect of it, and for people who have, you know, um, are suffering with that, with either pain or incontinence, you know, all of these different things, dryness, menopause, menopause, all. And I think, you know, it's, it's another branch that's kind of come into aesthetics because I think people come into aesthetics clinics and they will talk about some of these things. They may be feel more comfortable. They're not going to book an appointment with their GP and say, oh, I'm feeling a bit dry down below, you know. So I think that people trust their aesthetic practitioners and their aesthetic clinics and so that's why they open up about it. But I do think it's important that people recognise that that is another area that requires some speciality and and you totally know, agree. Yeah. interestingly enough it's the one area that husbands are very happy to pay for oh <laughs> well i'm not surprised <laughs> I, I was actually looking at happy wife happy life that's it brilliant so talking about trends what do you think is going to be the biggest trend next year what do you think we're going to be seeing well and how that is a very difficult question because i would have said if i the wellness aspect, I think, will be one of the biggest trends that we see. It's really hard sometimes to predict with aesthetics because who would have thought that 
you know, lips would have come back in the way that they did. Or, you know, like I remember writing about threads, say, 10 years ago, and then they kind of went away. And then that's become more popular. So even with all my experience in the industry, I find it really hard to predict what's going to happen. But I do think, almost in line with the the whole wellness thing, while you've got a lot of people who do seem to, you know, this reality TV look, they want the overdone look. I actually think there's the the potential for growth of products and treatments, you know, like things like Profilo that are really um, stimulating your own body to do things and to repair and to regenerate where you get natural results. I think there's a lot more people out there who want the natural results. And as we know, you know, techniques with injectables have improved so much, you know, over the years. It's incredible what some people can do. And they can create really great natural looking results rather than trying to make someone look not like them. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that will continue, you know, to um, to grow. And I, I think, again, you know, more and more treatments with less downtime, less pain, less, <laughs> oh. you know, if you could just stand there and land, sit under a flashing light. <laughs> it's actually really interesting you say that because, you know, clients come in and a lot of them feel like if there's no pain there, they're not going to get the gain. Mm. Where for me, you know, if it's painful, I think, no, I don't want anything that's painful. So it's like two different sides of the coin. Mm. Um, but talking about this, I, I feel like the market is becoming more and more accessible to people. Yeah. People know so much more about technology, products and treatments than they did before. Mm. You know, is a little knowledge dangerous or what's your take on it? Do you think people should, I don't know, they come in and they think they know a lot, but in actual yeah. fact, they don't know as much as they think they know. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think there was a um, a study that said that YouTube is one of the biggest um, areas of misinformation for people on cosmetic treatments and um, particularly on surgery. And um, I think it's great that people have some knowledge, but I also think that means that you decide almost what you want for yourself. And it can be difficult for practitioners to then say, do you know what, that's not maybe not right for you. And then they maybe go off and find somebody who will just do whatever it is they might want. So I think there's a dangerous side to that, but I do think it's important for consumers to be educated. I get frustrated sometimes when I read things in, you know, the, the on social media or in the press when they're really inaccurate and, um, you know, irresponsible journalism. Um, but, <laughs> I see it every day. Yes, I know. And, and you just think, oh, God, you know, people, the amount of times people still think Botox is something you have in your lips. So there's there is a definite growing of knowledge but there's still a lot of misinformation out there and I, I think a lot of that's driven by the fact that most of the media coverage comes out of what's negative about our industry which is a real shame because there's obviously a lot of positive but if you see anything in the you know it's hit the national headlines it's it's bound to be when something's gone wrong um, and, that, and that's a shame. <laughs> that's very true because um, I noticed that recently we had the problem with the, the butt implants. Yes. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. and suddenly from people wanting it and getting lots of inquiries, people suddenly said, oh, I'm going to die if I have this done, which mm. isn't true. It's a question of how good the surgeon is, yeah. where it's being performed, the cleanliness of the clinics, etc. Yeah, and I think this is the thing. I, uh, these, you know, negative kind of headlines, which are, tr you know, they're true that these things do happen. Um, but I think that sometimes they tarnish the whole industry and actually there's a handful of people that are doing bad practice and there's dangerous practices like maybe travelling abroad to save money and not doing your research properly. Not to say that if you you know, see somebody in another country, they're not a good surgeon. There's lots of good surgeons around the world. But it's that people's motivation for why they choose to do that. And quite often that's financial and, and therefore, you know, you're putting your, yourself at risk. And that's a real 
That's a real worry. It is a real worry, mm. which kind of leads me on to the regulation debate, which keeps rumbling on um, within our industry. As someone, being you, who's heavily involved in these types of conversations, could you give the listeners a simple overview um, of what the regulationary debate is all about and what it means for clients? Yeah, it's um, it's a really complex issue, so it's going <laughs> yeah, to be we hard know. to do it um, simply. Um, and I think there's a lot of emotion attached to it from every side. You know, there's um, I've really noticed that I think in the particularly over the last eighteen months. You know, people really who are in this industry really care about it. So they feel really passionately ab- about the lack of regulation in the sector. And and like I kind of said earlier, it's um, it ends up tarnishing the whole industry with a bad name when there is so much exposure to what the bad practice is. You know, but from my mind, we would, I'm sure, love it if the whole industry was regulated. But the main issue seems to be around injectables. And... And who shouldn't shouldn't be doing them? I think that's the thing that causes the most debate, and that's the thing that um, that we as a magazine find that there's the most controversy over, the most arguing over, and that's a real challenge. And I think everyone was disappointed when um, you know post the Cura review. I think everyone thought, "Oh, great, maybe we'll get some regulation and some some clarity," because at the moment, you know, as we know, it's not illegal to do these things. Um, there's no real particular. Um, legislation to give anyone guidelines. So it's all blurred. Nobody really knows. I think the most worrying thing is is that I know Botox, actually, you have to have a prescription for. Mm. So before you can actually inject it, mm. you need to prescribe it. And it has to be done by a doctor yeah. or a prescribing nurse. And you think there's you know, aestheticians who think they can actually do this, who think they know what they're doing. Mm. Yeah. Same with fillers. And, you know, I mean... I don't know how these young girls actually mm-hmm. think they have the knowledge or the in-depth knowledge to be able to inject somebody with yes. something like this. Yeah. This is the big worry. And I think fillers are the even more worrying side of it because, as we know, there's so many products, not all of which are, you know, reg- they're not regulated either. So, you know, you've got products that come into the country via, you know, very ethical manufacturers and suppliers, but they, they spill out, you know, someone... Someone will buy them for someone. People buy knockoff products online or they buy cheap fillers that haven't got any evidence around them. And I think, you know, it's, there's, don't get me wrong, there's unscrupulous doctors and nurses in the sector that come in, you know, driven by money. But as, if you have that medical background and you have that knowledge of anatomy and um, you, you're you have to answer to your regulatory body. And I think that's really important. I think that's one of the the areas where if you're not medically trained, you don't have that uh, recourse, really, um, to be able to get struck off. You know, this is where the frustration comes from, I, I think, from practitioners who've who've trained for a long time in areas of medicine, and then they get frustrated that people are doing things that are really endangering the public, you know, not just that they can create horrible results. So, I mean, I saw an article in the in the Sun the other day of this girl who'd had her lips done at a Botox party and they were swollen to twice their size and she was a beautiful girl. Um, and this was, you know, done by somebody who obviously hadn't had adequate training and um, it's just, yeah. So, uh, but I, I don't think it's all as hopeless as it may seem sometimes I, I think it's really reaching a peak of everybody feeling very angry about it and wanting regulation but I do think there's a lot of groups within the industry that are trying to make change and I know there's a lot of criticism about things like the voluntary registers the JCCP but actually you know when we don't have regulation 
setting standards, working out, you know, levels of education, trying to encourage groups to work together that you've usually traditionally worked separately, you know, bringing together doctors, nurses, surgeons, dermatologists, and bringing together the beauty sector as well to discuss these things, I think can only help with that. Like many people, I would like to see statutory regulation, but when we don't have it, I think anything that the the bodies like the BACN and BCAM are doing to encourage their members to, you know, make sure that they're practicing in the safest way. Unfortunately, that doesn't impact on the people who aren't, but it does mean that, you know, they're accountable and they're well trained and they can, you know, they can kind of stand up. And if regulation comes in, they'll be well prepared and at the front line to. <laughs> you know, I mean, we talk about the medical people coming into this, but often I have doctors coming into me that've done like, they've come out of the medical industry want to go into what I call the aesthetics industry and uh, they come in they've done like a weekend course with someone and they think they can inject well actually no no (laughs) no and the other way around you know I sometimes I see a dentist Mm. and a dentist has much better knowledge of anatomy of the face and how it's going to work and they're great at injecting but at the end of the day, it's somebody that's got a real skill and looking at a face and seeing mm-hmm. what is going to actually benefit. Yeah, there's person. an artistic element to it, yeah, isn't there? Tremendously, um, you so. know, definitely. And um, you know, I just I think that everybody, no matter what their background, needs to do adequate training. And when there's been no real guidance of what that means, I think that it's important that we do now. We're starting to develop some kind of idea of of what does that look like and what does that mean. Yeah, I agree. I mean. Um, can you see a downside to the growth and expansion of the industry? I mean, we're talking about this now that people, yeah. everybody thinks they can get into it. But Definitely. Do you think there's a, a downside? I, th- I think that the, you know, the downside of it is that when an industry becomes something that's seen as being really financially um, lucrative, which I think aesthetics is, has that perception, which, you know, people who run businesses in this sector know that actually, you know, like any business, it's hard work. It's not just a a cash cow. But um, I think there's that perception that it's it's an easy way to make money. And as such, that does attract certain people who are their main interest is financial rather than the safety of a, a, a patient or a client. So I, I, th- I think that that is, and when you don't have any reason to train properly, you can just, I mean, I could go out, I could buy some products off of some unscrupulous website and inject someone tomorrow. And I think that's the most terrifying thing. It certainly um, is. Yeah, so I do think that is a downside to to the growth in the market that um, it does then attract the wrong kind of people. But I, I think that again, like I said before, that gets so much attention that there's a perception that that's a large part of the market, and I actually think it's a very small part of the market um, that's doing bad practice. I think there's many more people out there doing great practice who are sending out quietly working in the background, sending happy patients out into the world, but they're not featuring, you know, anyway. in, in the news headlines because they want to keep it <laughs> under wraps that that's what they've had done. You're listening to The Beauty Biz with Esther Fieldgrass. So, Vicky, we've got, had a couple of people write in, knowing that you were coming in today, that have asked some questions. Um, so, firstly, uh, Rachel from London would like to know how you got into the industry, which you kind of told us, and uh, what are the best and hardest parts of your job? Yeah, so like I like I said, I kind of got into the industry by accident, but actually I was really 
interested in it as a you know as a journalist um it felt like a really exciting sector to be a part of because it was so new when I first got into it and um and I think that ties into what I I most love about my job is being creative and, and being able to come up with ideas so launching a magazine myself was a really great way to do that I'd never edited a magazine before I'd been a newspaper reporter and a features writer so you know, given the opportunity to launch a set at Meds, it meant I grew it with the market, and that was exciting. You know, I could um, come up with how we were how we were going to create this magazine that didn't exist at the time. You know, there wasn't anything um, in the sector similar to that um, when we first launched. So that was that's one of the things I enjoyed and and still enjoy now is is you know the creative aspects of my job. And I also enjoy really getting out and talking to people. I don't get to do that as much when I'm so busy as I as I would like to. But I really enjoy that. I think we've got some fantastic people in our industry who are really interesting. And whenever you meet people face-to-face, it's so much better when you can talk to them in person. So that's something I really enjoy. And I think in this day and age, the hardest part of my job is dealing with social media. I think that social media is a fantastic thing in in many cases. It's a great communication tool, marketing tool. I love my own personal Facebook because I can see what my friends around the world are doing. But I think it also breeds a lot of very quick fire um, anger and, you know, the keyboard warrior thing. And, you know, as a journalist, you expect people to get upset by certain things that you, you write. But I do find that really challenging and I think... You know, earlier this year, I removed myself from Facebook under my own name because it's almost as if if you write about something that people don't like, they think you personally have done made that decision or done that thing where you're just reporting on something. And I thought, you know, it's important for us to have a good, strong social media channel for the magazine. But if something has really upset somebody, then they can they can call me. And quite often, if people speak to you on the phone or they email you, it's a much more rational discussion than it is on social media. You get a lot I of find that? it very challenging. No, not when it's not on social media. <laughs> <laughs> but when it's on social media, yes. <laughs> okay. So this is, I think, a really good question. Emma wants to know if you try the treatments before you write about them. And also she wants to know what would be your desert island product? Oh yes, so that's a good question. I do one treatment review every month, and um, so that's great. So I either try a treatment or a product. Uh, Sometimes I do that over a period of time. So if I'm doing a skincare regime, I'll try it over a period of six months. And um, and then I write about it. So that's great. I get to try lots of things. And I think I said earlier, you know, I've been trying a lot of um, facials at the moment, which I really love. But if I had to choose a Desert Island product, I would have to go for an an SPF, definitely. I've got a couple of favourites, so I'm kind of going to cheat and not pick one. I do like a tinted SPF if I, you know, um, I'm not wearing any makeup and stuff in the summer. And I really like um, Neostrata's Sheer Physical Protection. I think that's a lovely tinted one. And Illumiere do a really nice um, sheer hydration tinted um, SPF. But I went to Peru trekking in September and I took with me the new Mesoaesthetic. Oh, I love um, that. Yes, they're lightweight uh, yeah. one. 
because it was really non-greasy. It was lovely. I really, really enjoyed that um, product. So, but I would, I would take an SPF with me if I was on a desert island. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I have got something which is launching in the next two weeks, which I think you will love. Exciting. <laughs> and something which is so different about it is that the industry, and I know reading a lot about health and one thing or another, have been going on about using too much SPF so that basically you're not getting enough vitamin D3. Mm. So what I've done, I've actually bought out a vitamin D3 spray, Fantastic. which you use. And when you get your SPF, you get the vitamin D spray alongside it. So you never have to miss out. And it enhances your mood, makes yeah. you feel fabulous, gives you everything you need. Well, that is an amazing idea because actually I just um, have had some like tests done. We've been talking about um, health and well-being and I... I I had some tests done and they said that I was really vitamin D deficient. Now, I'm someone who religiously wears SPF every single day. And um, and this has been the second time I've had a vitamin D deficiency. So um, I had to go on prescription strength supplement last okay. time. Um, so I've, I've been told I have that again. So that would be a great thing for me. It's fantastic. So you just spray it in your mouth, three sprays. Wonderful. There you go. <laughs> and the, the the point about the SPS, I brought it out in different colours. Mm -hmm. So we can test the colours on you, see Amazing. which one you like. Oh, thank you very Yay, much. baby. <laughs> Off we go. Um, finally, I'd like to ask you, what is the best career advice you've ever been given? And what advice would you give to someone wanting to come in the industry today? That's a great question. I think um, rather than advice that I've been given my best teacher I suppose when I was a, a trainee reporter he wasn't very nice to me but um, I used to have a chief reporter called Mike Bennett and um, he was just fantastic at challenging me to get out of my comfort zone and he never showed that he was either impressed or not impressed with what I'd done so of course I was very keen to get his uh, approval um, and he used to send me out on all of these crazy kind of stories and things but I think what that taught me was if there's something that's really important to you and you feel really passionate about it, which, you know, I was dying to be a journalist, it's what I'd wanted to do, you know, to work hard for it and to, to just do what you're doing without needing other people's approval in a, in a way. You know, I, I really wanted that, but he never kind of gave it to me. And eventually um, he recommended me for a promotion that I had no idea whether he kind of liked me or not. So, um, but all of the things that I got to do whilst I was working on the local newspaper really pushed me out of my comfort zone. And I uh, I really do believe that it's the struggles that make us stronger. You know, I'd be crying one minute downstairs in the toilets, and but I would still go and do it because it was something that was important to me and it was, it was hard. But I really do think that it's those challenges, you know, if everything comes easy, then it's not, you know, you don't kind of appreciate it as much. And I think people give up too quickly on things that they're passionate, they're passionate are about, or that are important to them. Obviously, there's a time to recognise when you need to walk away from things. But I, I think that was a great lesson for me as I started out. I'm, I'm pretty resilient now, and um, you know, I kind of keep forging on. <laughs> well, all I can say is, Mike, if you're out there listening to this podcast today, <laughs> I hope you're going to give Vicky a five star review. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Chance of you a fine thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, in terms of what advice I would give somebody else coming into the industry is kind of what we touched on earlier is to to do your to do your training to do really great training um, and and it can be hard to find what's the right kind of training course out there but I think 
you know, if you're going to come into any industry, it's, um, you know, when I was training to be a journalist, I had to go and do my degree. Then I had to do my um, MVQ in journalism, my postgraduate, you know, diploma. Um, I had to study shorthand, you know, all of those things, which is what you do when you go into a career that involves you know, you need training. And so I think that's really important for anyone coming into the sector is to really do their research and um, and make sure that they're getting the best training how, they can. How savvy do you think they need to be with social media? Oh, well, I think very savvy because um, either get somebody in who is savvy to help you do it or if you're going to do it yourself to be very careful because I think it can be a wonderful tool to promote your business. But I think people can come undone very quickly by... Sometimes, you know, inadvertently saying or doing the wrong thing, we have to be very careful when we're talking about some treatments that could be quite sensitive or, you know, and the ethics around it. So I, I think it's quite a minefield. It can be difficult. Um, but I also think it's such an important thing because so many people nowadays get their information about everything from social media. So I do think it's an important thing and it's just doing it in the right way and either going on a, a training course, you've got a good understanding of that yourself, um, going to obviously plug my own conference, but going to conferences and business workshops where you can learn from other people about some of the key things you can do to to for your social media. And if you've grown as a business and you're a big business, getting somebody in to, to, to manage it for you, employing someone that can can do it. Are you finding that there's a lot of non-industry people coming to the conferences now? Yes, yeah. But you promote it to non-industry people? Well, I know in terms of speakers, actually, we, we get that. But no, we don't promote the visitors to non-industry people. So it is just um, our first day of the conference is always uh, medical only for the conference. And then the second day is um, the beauty and medical. And then visitors to the show. But we, in terms of, um, you know, the social media, the business side of things, we're finding that there's a lot of people from outside of the industry who are now interested in working with people in the industry. And I think that's something that I've noticed that's different. So this year we've got speakers from quite different sectors because you've got a lot of people that specialise in business of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. But I'm seeing actually people from broader sectors thinking, oh, there's an opportunity here to to work with people. So what date this year? It's March the 23rd and 24th at Olympia. Fantastic. So anybody's out there listening who'd like to join us, mm -hmm. come along and see Vicky. Yeah. So thank you, Vicky. It's been great having you here with us today. Thanks so much for coming along. And to all our listeners, please subscribe and rate us if you haven't already. And join us soon for more Beauty Biz. Bye for now. The Beauty Biz with Esther Fieldgrass. Follow EF Medispa on Instagram. And to find out more about us, go to efmedispa.com. Produced by The Podcast Company.